friends, welcome. I'm Andrew Hicks, and you're listening to the Text and Context Podcast. I'm very excited for you to listen to this conversation that I was honored and privileged to have with the Austin Carty. Uh, author of the book, The Pastor's Bookshelf, Why Reading Matters for Ministry, published through Erdman's Publishing uh, just this year, 2022. Uh, An excellent, excellent read, uh, not terribly long, extremely practical, beautifully written, and it's very inspiring. I think if you read this book, especially as a pastor, that you will want to go out and read absolutely everything you can get your hands on. I know that that's what happened to me. So I really hope that this conversation that I had with Austin is a blessing to you, that it encourages you about the importance of the ministry of reading, and maybe that you'll go pick up a copy of The Pastor's Bookshelf, Why Reading Matters for Ministry. Enjoy. Hey, Austin. Hey, Andrew. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Thank you for asking me. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about you. Who is Austin Carty? Is it Carty? Is that how you Carty, say it? You got it just right. Austin Carty. I, I'm a pastor in uh, upstate of South Carolina, Anderson, South Carolina, which is right outside of Greenville. Um, I'm married to April and have four children, ages eight, six, uh, soon to be three and soon to be one. So it's pure anarchy at our house all the time. Um, yeah. And um, so I love to read. I love to pastor and uh, getting to know you and getting to talk to you uh, by virtue of a book I wrote on the marriage of those two things, reading as a pastor. Yeah. So, okay. The real question I want to ask is how many literary references are you going to try to fit into this this short podcast well let's see how let's see how many we can do you know we'll do this together we'll see how many we can come up with all right there may just be more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in most people's philosophy so. <laughs> sounds good awesome yeah okay so give me a brief overview view of the book i've already read it but you know for someone who might hear this and want to know about uh, the pastor's bookshelf why reading matters for ministry well there are two core theses to the book that everything else is built around. The first one is that reading is far more formational than it is informational. Mm -hmm. Most people, not just ministers, but people in general, tend to think of reading as an almost entirely informational act, meaning we read so as to upload the information we're reading uh, into Uh, the hard drives of our brains that we can then uh, download and use whenever uh, the time is right. And certainly that is something that happens. We read so as to gain more information, to be able to speak immediately and knowledgeably on any manner of things. That's absolutely a reason for reading. But that is not nearly as... Uh, significant a thing happening to us as we read as is the formational aspect. Mm -hmm. So studies show that um, outside of the few genetic uh, lottery winners who have immediate recall and photographic memories, uh, the rest of us read about, excuse me, retain about 10% of what we read, Mm -hmm. which means that if we're spending a lot of time reading and we're only retaining 10% of that, it can be very frustrating if we think of it as purely an informational exercise. But increasingly, now that cognitive neuroscience can do all kinds of studies on these things, we see empirically how what we read affects us and shapes us and forms us in far more ways than just the things that we immediately remember and can uh, regurgitate. So just because we're not remembering something does not mean that kind of the lens through which we see the world is being ever enriched and ever sharpened and further Mm -hmm. clarified by everything we read, whether we remember it all or not. Mm -hmm. So the first kind of thesis of the book is, is this presentation of reading as being 
more formational than it is informational. And then the second core thesis is that if that's the case, if somebody buys that, which I hope they do, and I think it's empirically, you know, a demonstrable <laughs> fact, um, but assuming somebody comes along that far, the next piece is as people in general and as ministers in particular, there's a sense that reading, though many of us do indeed love it, it can seem like it's a luxury, that yeah. it's it's something that's not really what we're called to do. It's not what we're being paid to do. So while we'd want to do that, we just don't have the time for it because it's a luxury on par yeah. with, you know, taking, you know, couple hours to get in nine holes of golf or going to get a daily massage or something like that, you know, and, That's and not a, for you, I thought that was a, for all pastors. Well, clearly I need to be in the circles you're in. <laughs> <laughs> I had to encounter the church that was expecting that of me. That's, that's, that's what I need. Yeah. Um, but, but with, with reading, it's, it's far more than a luxury. It, it's in my view a vocational responsibility. And so, the second core thesis is that we should stop thinking of reading as a luxury and begin thinking of it as a vocational responsibility because that formational piece ends up affecting us as ministers in, in a positive way in every sphere of our vocation. Preaching, pastoral caregiving, vision casting, leadership, um, and I talk about all of those things in the book, but it's all really built around those two core ideas that reading is more formational than it is informational and that we should therefore not as ministers think of it as a luxury, but think of it more as a vocational responsibility. Mm. So let's say someone buys it and, and I, not just the book, but they buy what you're, 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 uh, articulating. They buy your argument that reading is formational not inf it's primarily formational not primarily informational and that it's not just a luxury for those who can afford it but that it's a it's a real pastoral necessity let's say someone buys that what is your vision of what that would look like on the ground for everyday pastors that if they they take what you have have, have uh, articulated what's your vision of what that would really look like can you paint me like a picture I can. Yeah, and that's a great question. And that's really what the book is in service of trying to put some flesh on, because obviously what I just you know, said to you can be said in, you know, 10 sentences. Uh, the real question is, so then what does that look like? How does one do that? Uh, how does one make time for that? How does one justify it? Um, and let me get at that question by also addressing another one of the things that lurks underneath all of this with with ministers thinking that reading is a luxury more than a vocational responsibility, it therefore breeds a sense of either guilt or shame if we're taking time during the workday to do that. Mm. If, if we haven't properly framed that to ourselves uh, and either directly or indirectly to uh, our members, then to take time during the workday to read can be an act that makes us feel uneasy or, or guilty. And uh, the introduction to my book is actually called Permission to Read Freely because yeah. I, a lot of this was born out of, you know, that existential reality for me um, early in my first call, taking some time to read, but feeling like, what if somebody sees me in my office doing this? They're not paying me to be here reading. Yeah. Um, and so over time, as I began to have better language for explaining how these things are uh, ultimately productive and practical that that while you don't read instrumentally thinking I'm going to read this book to use it for this particular purpose but you do read knowing that that reading will continue to build up and will continue to inform and shape everything you're doing so it does have practical application and value it's just not you never know exactly how in the moment um but as as one who began to to really see that yeah this really is fruitful uh, far more than just, I like to read and it's a way that I feel entertained. Um, I then began thinking, all right, well, so how do I explain why this is a good use of my time and how do I encourage others to, to feel permission to do this themselves? And one of the core um, pieces on top of those uh, two main theses that I mentioned is that if somebody comes along that far and then asks, well, how do I find the time? Mm 
my first answer is, well, take an hour of your day on your calendar, mark it out, and set that aside as a time for reading, not not sermon prep. Those are two you know different things. This is this is just reading. Um, but then think of it as a pastoral visit, um, not mm-hmm. as just sitting down reading, mm-hmm. because really what the reading act is is it is a conversation, it is a dialogue between uh, two human persons. Some of those might be long dead, but still, that is that is a human person in conversation with another. And so with pencil in hand, reading, marking, um, grappling with, putting exclamation mark or something by something that really resonates, yeah. um, it's not unlike going to a pastoral visit with a flesh and blood person, where unless you just really have an overinflated sense of yourself as a pastor, you know that you go into a pastoral visit, not as the all-knowing dispenser of nuggets of knowledge and wisdom, but Mm -hmm. as a human being going in to have a conversation with another human being, where you're both going to be affected by and enriched by uh, the encounter. And that's what's happening each time we engage with, with a writer as well. So Eugene Peterson was the one who first kind of gave me the the mm-hmm. the, the the seeds for this um, this idea. He writes in um, I'm pretty sure it's in the Contemplative Pastor that uh, he every now and again would mark out time on his calendar for uh, meetings with FD Fyodor Dostoevsky. And um, mm-hmm. so on my calendar each day, there's an hour marked out just to read, and I think of that as a pastoral visit. Um, because I'm an avid reader, it's something I've been doing for a long time because I love it. Um, and because I've kind of built up that muscle in a way that maybe somebody who hasn't been reading as regularly hasn't yet. Mm-hmm. I also read a couple hours in the morning, you know, I wake up early and, and read. Um, and so I always encourage folks that are interested in, in giving this a shot at becoming what I call pastor readers. Start by just carving out, trying to carve out an hour a day to read. And so that's push up. What's that? That's like your first push up. That's getting started to get in shape with your reading. Perfect. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's like the first push up. And and if that proves to be too tough, then then the next day make it 30. You know, but but it's it's commit the time. And I recommend trying to do an hour. And then maybe once you've built up that muscle and you begin to see that it's fruitful, um, then add 30 minutes in the morning or in the evening or, you know, maybe even another hour. Um, I really believe that uh, if one can find a way to read a couple hours a day, he or she will be shocked by how enriching that becomes over time. Because Fred Craddock, um, the famous uh, preacher, you know, love love Craddock, and uh, he refers to it as as filling up the reservoir. And... Mm. You know, you just with with each thing you're reading, you're 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 filling up the reservoir a little more. And the benefit of that is you never know when something in there from the reservoir is going to be the thing you need in that moment. Moreover, you might not ever know it. You you might not know how the person you brought into the hospital room or uh, into the house for the pastoral visit or even into the pulpit in the sermon, you might not even be aware of how something you read and formed and shaped what you did or said in that moment. Um, those things happen too. There have been times after the fact that I've realized that something that I had um, read, um, learned, uh, a, a scene that I kind of lived through the eyes of another character of how that had kind of helped me get my bearings in a situation without even knowing in the moment that that was the case. Um, but that's all that all that all is drawn from that reservoir that, that we build up by regular reading. And I think a couple hours a day is a way to really begin uh, to to build that reservoir. And it builds at compound interest, too. You know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. these things build on top of one another uh, in a way that they they, they serve in conversation with one another. They enrich one another, these ideas. They, they don't just kind of sit there in a static way. Mm. 
That's excellent. Yeah, I I love Fred Craddock. You know, uh, I'm I'm in the Churches of Christ. Christ, uh, Craddock started in the Churches of Christ and then was a disciple by the time it was done. But he stayed in the Stone Campbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I like Craddock. Uh, anybody who knows preaching knows Craddock, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask. You know, you're talking about setting aside an hour, or you you set aside at least two in the morning, maybe one more after that, but. Uh, my question is also like, so one of the things you talk about in the book is this is not just, you said sermon prep, and this is also not just nonfiction theology, et cetera. This is also fiction. This is um, good story and good writers of any variety, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I foreground fiction in the book, not because yeah. I necessarily think that fiction is more important, uh, but because as ministers, I think we really have a way of devaluing fiction because mm -hmm. to go back to that luxury idea, it, it just doesn't feel like fiction can be instrumentalized. You know, we, we feel like, um, what is going to be the practical application of this? How can I justify reading a story? And that's to really reduce what story is and does because fiction works at us at this much deeper register than nonfiction does because we're, gleaning things about the human condition when we read fiction we're stretching uh we're, we're, we're quite literally um stretching and 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 forming our neurological wiring um in in ways that um that, that studies show strengthens our capacities for empathy, strengthens our ability to appreciate complexity and ambiguity, um, causes us to become more critical thinkers. All of that happens through reading in general, but reading fiction in particular. Um, James K.A. Smith refers to what story does to us as being uh, kind of reconfigured at subterranean levels. And I, I love that way of of kind of thinking about the level at which fiction's working on us. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite essays, an essay in his book, God, uh, God in the Dock, talks about this too. And he talks about how there are two different ways of knowing. There's the kind of knowing that's the concrete, um, uh, lived experience of something you know if we fall and hurt our ankle we we know what pain is in that moment we don't you know we don't need to read or write some dissertation on what pain is we're feeling it <laughs> and you know but then when we're in the comfort you know of our office we can write a great philosophical treatise on what pain is but we're not in that mm. moment necessarily feeling pain mm. so there's the experiential knowledge and then there's the um, there's the kind of abstract philosophical knowledge. But Lewis says that that story is the thing that bridges those, because while we're in story, we're both experiencing it because we're actually in the shoes and seeing through the eyes of the character. But we're also at enough of a remove that we're processing it on kind of an intellectual abstract um, uh, level plane as well. So that's something that story does, and therefore it really benefits us as as ministers to read a lot of fiction. And and having said that, though, that doesn't then mean that we should read exclusively fiction. It just means that we should. Most of us who have kind of been um, subconsciously trained not to, to read as much fiction should should beef up the amount that we read. Um, but nonfiction uh, serves you know equally important roles because even though I said a moment ago that um, that we only retain 10% of what we read and that reading is more formational than it is informational. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, that's not to, <laughs> that's not to diminish the significance of learning as much as we can and being able to speak credibly on any number of things. So the wider we read and the more curiously we read uh, and the more charitably we read, the more we're going to be able to be speak as wise counselors um, and unanxious presences on, on, on most everything. Mm. Have you received a lot of pushback from this, like from critics, fellow, even like maybe fellow leaders on staff or from other pastor friends? Have you, have you had some pushback on this? I really haven't. Um, and I don't know if it's because that's been such a core part of 
how I've identified as a minister for so long mm. that it's just been assumed. So I, I can't say that um, I can't say that that anybody who starts trying to do this won't get some pushback from from members or or anyone else. But I I honestly haven't gotten a whole lot of pushback, um, mm. and I think that that's in part because it does become clear that it has bearing on what a minister is doing it these things can't help but come out and i truly believe come out in um in, in positive and beneficial ways mm. you know i um as you said that i was reminded of a an article that i was required to read starting seminary in the like how to use the library introduction to research kind of class yeah and it was called the ministry of study and it was all about you know some people might devalue even the time that a minister takes to study for classes sermons whatever um, even if it's more than just what they directly quote from a commentary in a sermon but just that that preparation in general to spend some hours hunched over a desk learning um, and it was really impactful to me, but now I'm thinking uh, there might also be the ministry of uh, leisurely reading. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's that ex it's that same principle because, you know, underneath the things that do come out are all kinds of things that are there supporting it, but in an unassuming way. Um, so all of that stuff in that reservoir supports whatever directly comes out of the reservoir. Um, yeah. But you don't have the reservoir unless you build it. That's that's kind of what mm. it all comes down to. Mm. Yeah, we have like an over-pragmatism about us. Like if I can't find a one-to-one -one correlation used for something, therefore it must not be useful at all. That that That's exactly right. And and it's the way that culturally we kind of understand what is of value is is – is there a practical utilitarian instrumental purpose for this thing? Because if not, there could certainly be a better use of my time. Mm -hmm. And that's why understanding this is formative more than just informative is so crucial to either buying this idea or rejecting it because formation by necessity takes time. But once something is more and more formed, then Obviously, there's going to be practical application of everything that that grows out of that that person, you know, that thing that's been formed. So, Absolutely. so to 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 understand this as a process is is critical. And I say at least once in the book, if not twice, that the principle is really that we read by faith, not by sight. You, we mm -hmm. read trusting that. It, it, that it all matters, that it's all significant, that it's all building us up, that it's all enriching, and that it will have practical value, but that it won't work if we're reading it because we want to read this thing right here because we want to be able to use it. Um, that always rings hollow. You know, we've all heard a sermon. We've all heard, we all know the difference between a sermon where there was a really apt, perfect, literary reference or quote or illusion where what it did was it brought out other notes and accents of the main gospel point mm -hmm. um, over against a sermon where it was pretty clear that the preacher just wanted to throw in that they read something by Dostoevsky or, <laughs> or here's this Hemingway quote, you know, that, that you, you, it's almost hard not to think, okay, you really liked that quote and so you've shoehorned it in and you've kind of built the rest of the sermon around it um mark twain famously said that uh there's all the difference in the world between lightning and the lightning bug and and i think that in the same way there's all the difference in the world between uh something from our reading uh that gets worked into um, a sermon or a Bible study or something that comes to us unbidden as we've been praying over and going about the preparation of the sermon of the study 
versus something that we started out saying, I really want to say this because this is a great, this, this is great. And it sounds wonderful. And mm. I'm really trying to cultivate this literary aesthetic that, that, that always rings slightly false um, in a way that if you've just been building the reservoir, the right thing will come at the right time. Um, I'm, I'm often asked if in kind of my filing system, if I file them under like quotes and things that I've, I've marked um, under topics like grace or sin or, you know, whatever. And, and I don't for the very reason we're talking about right now, because I, I need to, while I'm reading or while I'm writing a sermon or trying to think of something, it needs to come to me in a way that I remember the thing I'm talking about. And then I can go search my searchable word document. Yeah. So explain kind of, yeah. You talk about that in the book. So talk, talk for just a moment, uh, just to give a tease about how you do your filing system. Yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkably easy. You know, while I um, read, I always read with a pencil in hand, and I recommend everybody do that. I think that many of us tend to think that once formal education's over, there's no need to read with pencil or pen in hand, and I, mm. I disagree with that. Um, I disagree deeply with that. Um, and so I first counsel folks to come up with their own kind of notation system, um, something that is fairly consistent so that you, you kind of know, you kind of know what you're doing when you're, when, when you're marking. So for me, uh, I, I, I use check marks. Um, I'll every now and again, do a little asterisk by something, which is a signal to me that maybe that one was even more significant to me than just the thing that I checked. I'll underline things every now and again, and I'll make, you know, little margin notes. I try to do that sparingly, but um, when it, when it seems important, I'll, I'll kind of make a little margin note to myself. Um, but then when I'm done reading, I go back and look at all those places that I've put my check marks or underlines and, um, and I put them into a word doc. It's just a word doc that keeps building on top of itself. Um, and it's all kind of under the header in that same document of whatever that book title was. But then, you know, that's searchable. So I can then go in and type in some keywords and it won't take me long to find the thing that I'm looking for. But that's significant because if I'm preaching a sermon on, say, grace, then just because there's a quote that has to do with grace, it doesn't mean that it's speaking about grace in the exact sort of connotative sense and in the exact context of what I'm trying to say about it in that sermon. Mm. Um, and so to just kind of work in a quote that's, you know, generally about grace into a sermon that's saying something specific about grace, that doesn't mean that that, that quote's probably not going to work. Um, and so one of the things about the reservoir is we tend to then recall even if it's kind of fleetingly where we couldn't even paraphrase the quote, we recall how that thing may have struck us and you can go track that down. And then you've kind of heightened your chances of having the exact right quote for the exact point that you're trying to make in a way that I think falls flat. And um, for other use, I'm, and I'm not diminishing these, but, but books that are just kind of um, collections of quotes um, it, it per the Twain quote, sometimes you can try to smuggle in uh, something on lightning by saying something about the lightning bug. Just because it's a sermon about grace doesn't mean the quote on grace is the exact right fit. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So whenever you transfer it from the book to the doc, do you, so you, you know, you have your asterisk or your check mark. Do you distinguish those kind of things on the doc as well? Or do you just, any quote or notation just goes in just as it is? That's a great question, Andrew. Nobody's ever asked me that either. Um, no, I just I just directly as is. It's it's in the book is the only place that I've kind of got the 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 distinguishing marks. Do you put like page numbers so you can go back and find it in the book or anything? I do, yeah, I do. Okay, that makes sense. okay. All right. Um, yeah, you talk about your your different uh, symbols that you use, and you've said pencil. So only pencil, like not a pen, literally a pencil. Yeah, that, and, and I'm glad you picked up on that. And a second ago, I said pencil or pen, and I about went back and, 
and corrected myself, but I thought I'll let it fly. So I'm glad you just asked okay. that. I am, I'm far preferential to a pencil. Um, it's not to say that sometimes I don't just have a pen at hand, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not draconian on these things, you know, and, and I, um, and I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not fundamentalist on it or anything. Um, but you know, if, I, I don't always necessarily know when I'm about to sit and do serious reading. Sometimes it just begins and happens and mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got, there's a pen, but when I have my choice, um, which is most regularly, it's, it's with a pencil. And that's one because uh, it always leaves open the option for in a second reading or something. If there's something you might want to change or amend, you can. But even more than that, and this is something that one of my dear friends who read a draft of this asked me, and I thought it was so insightful. He asked if, if, my, if, if my counsel to use a pencil as opposed to a pen is it all related to my uh, my counsel in the book to read with a with a charitable and kind of humble spirit and mm-hmm. and I'd, I I had never thought of it that way to be honest with you but I'd like to think that does have something to do with it too I think that there's something more kind of humble and open about an ongoing dialogue when when you're using a pencil than kind of the the finality of a pen um you know when we're having conversation with people it's it's never well very seldom is it ever final it's until next time so to speak or you know i i here's here's what i think now but that's open for you know shaping and enriching and evolution um and i and i think something might be i, I think something about using a pencil is suggestive of that yeah. Do you ever go back and actually erase something or is it just yeah. the symbolism of the matter? Yeah, well, it's, it's both. But there has been times when I've gone back and, and erased something. We're on a second reading. Um, I don't know that I've ever erased a check mark, but maybe there's something that whatever I'd kind of put as a margin note, um, just not only that it just that it didn't make any sense. Like it, it didn't, it, it didn't do anything significant there or, um, and this is spurring. I mean, I, I very seldom find myself erasing things, but every now and again, I'll go back on something and whatever notation I'd made just feels in the way of, um, of my experience of, of the text the next time through. Um, there've been times where I've underneath a margin note written something else too, um, that just kind of showed that, my take on this thing was slightly different or I saw something else in this passage this time that I might not have seen before. Um, so I have erased, but, but it's not often. Hmm. So you also talk about, um, you, you know, we talked about Eugene Peterson said he put time on his calendar for reading or for a pastoral visit with uh, F.D. or uh, Dostoevsky. And so I'm curious, though, so that that is like a pastoral visit. And I love the way you talk about that. You, you have like two chapters. One of them is like uh, reading as pastoral care. And then the other is reading as a pastoral visit. Uh, those were maybe my favorite chapters in the book. Oh, good, good. But I'm curious. So, you, you know, you, you literally actually pencil it in on the, the schedule. And so let's say that a bunch of stuff comes up. Do you hold what kind of priority do you give that? Like, is it able to be docked for the day or like, do you hold it in such a regard that, you know, there's very little that's going to knock that out of the way? Somewhere between those two poles. Again, I'm not fundamentalist on this either. You know, and once really it becomes more about it, it's almost like forming the habit more than it is holding the exact hour. Um, Once, once you get to where, it's become a part of your regular rhythms and routines to have, you know, about an hour to read. Then you become, I think, more flexible with kind of working that in on the fly. Um, in the in the in, in the early stages, though, and and even still, for me as somebody who who does this daily, this still is true. Um, trying to trying to abide by the time that I've that I've scheduled. Um, is important, um, but it becomes 
it becomes more second nature to find the time in the day and to to make sure that if you've had to move things around that you're going to make up for it once it really has become a part of your day. Um, if you start out by having something in your calendar in the first couple of days, you've <laughs> you've you've let it go, then you're never going to form the habit. Um, but you know, ministry, and this is true of of all vocations, of course, but ministry you don't you can't really dictate what your schedule is going to be you don't know when something's going to come up that you have to go to and you have a sense of what what reading what what can wait so that you can say no i've got this i've got this hour penciled in and what actually is 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 more important and then you 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 go take care of that thing and try to figure out a way to make up for it on the other end of the day that's not always possible but if one's committed to it, it, it usually is, you know, an hour is not an insignificant amount of time. Um, but it's also, it's also not, it, it, it's not an exorbitant amount of time either. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it I'm, I'm reminded of the title of another chapter of reading as a spiritual discipline, because you keep using the word habit. It's, it's that, that formative, practice in our life. Um, can you talk a little bit more about reading as a spiritual discipline? Yeah. And that's, that was a perfect follow-up question. Um, because forming a habit and I, I talk about it as habit in that chapter. And, and then I pivot and say, at this point, I want to stop referring to it as habit though, and start referring to it as a spiritual discipline. Mm. You know, um, most every, um, spiritual writer who has written on spiritual discipline acknowledges that discipline is not only um, abstaining from something or dropping something, which is what we tend to think of discipline as, but it's, it's just as much about picking up something that's, you know, healthy and important. And so to me, picking up this practice of reading and thinking of it not as just a habit, but as, you know, a, a spiritual discipline that, that, that is enriching us and making us wholer persons and um, healthier persons and um, um, more hopefully content and magnanimous persons, um, which all of this, by the way, kind of hinges upon a willingness to read with a charitable and open and humble spirit. Um, mm. George Steiner has a great quote that I'll paraphrase, but it's something like we, we know that there were members of uh, the Gestapo that um, would would listen to Bach and Beethoven, uh, and I forget who he says that they would read, you know, um, before before going, you know, to to the concentration camps or to the you know, and 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 there's that's that's that that that's true. Just because one reads, it doesn't necessarily follow that they're going to become a. a a better a better person though i do think the odds are continually enriched but if the disposition is right with which we come to reading i think it's almost it almost necessarily follows that we become more grateful more more content happier more joyful um just our sense of things is enlarged i i really believe that's that's the case and so that that's something that comes out of the, the disciplining of doing this day after day after day and to that end having a specific time and a specific place uh is really really helpful in forming a discipline so i mentioned that along with uh carving out an hour during the day i, I read in the morning that's that's probably a more core part of the discipline for me than than even is making time in the calendar during the day you know because there's a specific chair a specific time I aim to get at that chair. I have my coffee there. It's before my family are awake. And um, and so there's a place, there's a there's 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 a focus. Um and and all of those things have been shown to be beneficial in actually forming a spiritual discipline. Henry mm -hmm. Nowen writes really well on this, and I kind of cited in the book in that chapter. Um, but yeah, I, I think forming it as a habit, but thinking of it as far more than a habit as, as a spiritual discipline is, is really important. Mm. Wonderful. Uh, and I hadn't thought of reading, for example, fiction uh, as a spiritual discipline. And, but I, I, I love that idea. And I love that I feel a permission 
that I didn't feel before. Um, you know, Plantinga wrote the uh, of the book uh, Reading for Preaching, and, and you reference him in your book. Um, how do you see your book interacting with that one? Do you see it as like somewhat continuing that or in conversation with that in some way? Well, inspired by in conversation with basically just extending what what Neil Plantinga had done in his book uh, beyond preaching and into other spheres of, of ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there would not be a book, the pastor's bookshelf, uh, were it not for Neil Plantinga and for Tom Long. Um, they're the whole reason that Erdman's even opened an email from me. Um, you know, Neil helped me think through, um, this book read several drafts, the the kindness and generosity of spirit that Neil Plantinga and that Tom Long have shown me over the past several years, um, is just a testament to just pure goodness. Um, so, for my book to even be mentioned in the same breath as Neil's is not only a compliment I could never have, have have imagined several years ago, but it's meaningful because I consider Neil, you know, not only a good friend, but but the reason that I even have a book. Mm, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Yeah. Did you study with Plantinga? Or, I mean, you, you clearly got to know him somehow. I, I studied with Tom Long. Um, I did my, my D-men at, at Emory. And Tom taught a J-term course. And Tom, um, for anybody that's ever heard him preach or anybody that's been able to sit under him uh, in any type of a teaching environment or just in general, I mean, he's not only brilliant, he's so charismatic and he just has a room enraptured. And he sprinkles everything he's saying with quotes and allusions and things from from literature and it's just extemporaneous it's off the cuff um and it was tuesday of that j term course um and he'd been doing this now for a full day and we're you know a couple hours into the 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 second day and one of the members of my cohort you know there were 12 of us that went through the whole thing together it just said you know dr long i'm sorry to interrupt you but um you just you, you have all these literary references, and I'm just curious whether you have like a system. How 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 do you how do you know all these things? How do you how do you incorporate all of this this way? And so he just extemporaneously began talking about his philosophy of reading, and the more he talked, the more he was describing what was my demon project. You know, my mm. my project was reading for for ministry, and so the cohort knew what my probably well, of course knew what one another was working on or were working on um and um and so everybody kind of started smiling at me and tom noticed that and he kind of stopped he said why is everybody looking and smiling at you Austin?" And so we were kind of describing my my project and he said oh really he said well, let's talk after after class and um and i thought that was just something he was saying you know um but I did stay after, and he talked to me for like 30 minutes. And the first thing he asked was, you know, have you read Neil Plantinga's book, Reading for Preaching? And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. It's one of my primary sources. He said, well, have you talked to Neil Plantinga about this? And I kind of said, how am I going to talk to Neil Plantinga, you know? Uh, and he said, well, he said, I think that you'd really benefit from talking to him. I'll, I'll connect you to. And again, I thought, well, that's just, you know, it's a nice gesture. It's something that that probably won't happen. Um. But sure enough, Andrew, I got back to um, my office the next week, and the next thing I know, I'm copied on an email from Tom DeNeal saying, I want to introduce you to uh, this young pastor, Austin Carty. He's working on reading for preaching and, um, you know, think that uh, you two would enjoy talking. And Neil responded right away, and that's how I met Neil. And, you know, that was nearly four or five years ago now, probably. Mm. Um, and they've just been my my helpers and thought sharpeners and champions of what i'm doing ever since and um they didn't obviously neither of them had any they didn't have to do that at all you know uh to take that kind of time and i do know this i'll never forget it that's awesome yeah i see tom long wrote the forward yeah that's really yeah you have some pretty fantastic uh endorsements 
that even if our mutual friend hadn't have sent this to me, I, I probably would have found it just because I love Will Williman. I love Tom Long. I love James K. A. Smith and I love Plantinga. So, I mean, <laughs> I would have yeah. probably found it even if I didn't have it sent to me by a friend. Shout out to Todd Collins for sending that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad he's connected us in this way. Yeah. Because clearly you and I are cut out of the same cloth and this is the beginning of a lifelong friendship to talk about ministry and books. Um, and uh, yes, I mean, because all of those people you just named, they're far more than people who blew my mind by endorsing this book. I've been reading <laughs> their work and yeah. have been quoting from them and learning from all of them. Um, so the fact that they read one of my books and and uh you know we're willing to put their name on it as you can imagine it mm -hmm. it's been you know thrill of a lifetime for me absolutely i can imagine so i've got to ask what are you reading right now right this minute i just finished a novel called the candy house by jennifer egan okay. she won uh the pulitzer in 2000 and i want to say seven for a book called A Visit from the Goon Squad. Um, I really liked that book. And this picked up on uh, those same characters. And I'm sure this one will win some awards. It was it, it was really good. Um, I just finished Andrew Root's book, um, Churches in the Crisis of Decline. Uh, mm -hmm. Andy um, is another one of those that I, you know, still can't believe endorsed my book. He's somebody I've been reading and benefiting from for years. And in the last year or so, I've been fortunate enough to get to know and, um, and, and even go so far as to call a friend. Um, but so anything he's written in the last about seven years, I've read immediately. So this new book of his is again called, called Churches in the Crisis of Decline that I encourage anybody that's uh, in ministry to, to read along with his trilogy, Ministry in a Secular Age. Those are all mm -hmm. great books. Um, just read Jonathan Franzen's newest novel, Crossroads. Um, Chuck Klosterman's book, The 90s. Um, and then, um, what am I forgetting here? I always say one of the signs when I'm talking to somebody about um, books of whether they're a real reader or not. You ask them what to read and they get so excited about the question and they start to get really anxious because there's so many things they've been reading they forget exactly what the ones they've been reading yep. in that last moment are. There's a, there's a difference between the blank face where it's like, oh gracious, I'm about to be exposed as having not read. <laughs> Somebody who's like, oh my gosh, you asked the question? Nobody wants to talk to me about this. How many how many things can I tell you about? What all have I been reading? Um, it's, there's just a totally different uh, response. Um, and anybody that's a reader knows exactly what I mean yeah. by, by saying that. Yeah. Um, Permission to gab. That, yes, that's exactly right. You know, when, when we find one another, it's like, you know, C.S. <laughs> Lewis, you know, famously writes in, in um, the four loves that that friendship begins the moment one person says to another one you too you know i thought it was just me mm -hmm. that's certainly the case for for readers you know mm -hmm. you too let's talk about this for the rest of our lives yeah. um so the reader is like it's, it's almost like we're being introduced by a mutual friend like you and i were literally introduced by a physical mutual friend but you know we also uh love Tom Long or Andrew Root or James K. K. Smith, you know, some of these people, and it's like, oh, you know them too? That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, and um and and I love you put it that way, Andrew, because one of the things that also happens in that same chapter in the four loves is Lewis talks about with friendship. Um the more friends that are united by that thing, whatever it is, um, the better. He says, you know, he gives the example of now that one of their close friends had died. Um, you would think that he and this other guy, you know, that he had more of the remaining friend. He said, but I actually have less of him because there were specific things to that other person that could bring out aspects of the remaining friend and his personality mm -hmm. that he, Lewis, couldn't and vice versa. And he said that with 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 friendship, it's like at the end of uh, Dante's Inferno when they're entering paradise there's 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 the voice of the saints and here comes another who will augment our loves i, I love that line and mm -hmm. so that's the case when when you meet another reader it's like yes you're 
it's it's as if the person whose book you're talking about has has introduced you but then by virtue of the fact that you want to be in conversation with this that you can never have too many people talking about that mm. person's book because what everybody has to say about it is only going to make you appreciate that book even more because they're going to bring something to it their energy their insight into it whatever it's just going to make you enjoy the conversation all the more mm. like the only thing better than this conversation we're having right now is if one other person we're on that loved reading in general and reading these particular people, you know, as much as we did, then it just becomes that much better because that's, that's what, what true friendship united around, you know, a, a, a passion for a shared truth is about. I think I just got an idea for a future podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Find a think tank to, to, think about uh, talk about some of these authors that's uh, it that's it and, and see how many voices you can get on the podcast at once all talking about <laughs> that 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 same writer awesome okay so here's another one similar vein what's the best book you've ever read oh wow that's 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 one of those it's almost impossible to answer I, so no um but that doesn't mean i won't try um I, uh, so the, the the best answer for that is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because mm, really? it's yeah because it's the book that made me fall in love with reading. Okay, uh, I I kind of feel like every time I open a new book, the little kid in me is hoping that I'll find my way back through the wardrobe into Narnia um, mm. because I've never or I have never before been so enraptured by um, a story than I was in the second grade in Mrs. Hawks's classroom, uh, listening to, um, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Mm. Um, and then being so drawn in that I couldn't wait for her to finish the story, you know, day by day reading a chapter that I had to go get the book and finish it. Um, so, so that's probably the, the best in terms of the best single reading experience I've ever had. Um, in terms of, my favorite books, I always list, and certainly when I'm talking about modern fiction, I always list Gilead, um, which is mentioned a few times in my book. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. I've never heard of that before. Oh, Andrew, I, you will love it. Um, it's about an aging Congregationalist minister who's reflecting back on his life in ministry, and he's writing to this young son uh, that he had way late in life thinking he would never marry and have children. And so he didn't set anything aside. He'd made no preparations. He knows he's not going to be there to watch the boy grow up. And so all he really has to leave him is, is his wisdom. Um, it's, it's not a plot driven book. It's, it's a character and, and, um, and just kind of meaning driven book. Yeah, but yeah. but it's it's absolutely worth reading. So I I always put that one in there. In terms of classic novels, I always say the Brothers Karamazov. I'm reading that um, right now. Yeah, good, good, good. Um, you know, Dostoevsky's one of those that when you talk about fiction, mm -hmm. kind of teaching us something about the human condition. Nobody may be better so than than Dostoevsky. Um I've been asked several times since this book came out what books i'd recommend particularly novels people um start out with and i've been a little resistant to answering that because in the book i really make try to make a case for how just because a book was meaningful for me and i'm able to kind of point to how it became practical practically applicable to something I was doing, that doesn't mean that it will be as meaningful and practically applicable to anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, there is also something to, you know, giving somebody some suggestions. And one of those that I've, I've been leaning toward um, is Elizabeth Strout's novel, All of Kitteridge, which won the Pulitzer in like, maybe 2010 or so um it's it's a really good one to start with and Kazuo Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day I think is also a really good one um and then Wendell Berry's uh either Jaber Crow or The Memory of Old Jack 
those have been the ones that lately I've been telling folks if they really want a recommendation of a novel that is enjoyable, that's not like trying to, I mean, I, I don't tell somebody that hasn't been reading to go pick up the Brothers Karamazov. I mean, yeah. that's like somebody that hasn't been working out instead of trying to tell them to go do some push-ups, like, you know, go go put, you know, 350 on there, you know, and and, and, and try to bench press. Um, So, uh, Otto Kitteridge is a really good start, as are, you know, the Remains of the Day or those Wendell Berry novels that I cited. And, well, I wouldn't put any of those up as the best book I've ever read to, to circle back to where your question started. Um, but all of them are with our answers to what are some of my favorite books and what are some of the best books I've read in the last 15, 20 years. Mm. Yeah. I read that's, that's elite company, you know I mean? Cause I've read a lot of books in that time. And uh, so to name something, not as just a book I really liked, but one that I can definitively say was one of the, best books in my view that I've read in 20 years that that's it's not saying it's the best book but it's it's really saying something about the book absolutely absolutely yeah I'm gonna look into those that's uh I wrote it down well when you do email me and let me know what, what you think for sure I think I'm gonna tackle Gilead first um that's the one I recommend going to first I'm intrigued yeah I'm intrigued that's the that's the other good thing I think about finding fellow book nerds bi bibliophiles or whatever is that um, the recommendations just start flowing? Oh, have you read? No, but I like that author. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And and that's oh. that's so right. And I'm glad you said all that because it leads to something that's important to say. You know that I mentioned in the book too. That it might be that you'll pick up Gilead and you think, what do I not see that Austin's seeing? You know, um, or one of those others, the same thing. That's happened to me a million times. Um, books that I know I'm supposed to love and people who's kind of opinions and recommendations uh, I, I, you know, give, you know, weight to. And if, if, if a book's not working, you know, I always counsel people, don't force yourself to stay the course. You never know when that book might call to you later on. Yeah. Um, I, I won't go into the story. Somebody can read my book if they're interested on this, but I talk, as you know, in the book about how Owen Meany, uh, the prayer, a prayer for Owen Meany, the John Irving novel, is one of those for me. Mm. I, I wanted so badly to like that book. People whose opinions I, I really trusted, just what the book is about in general, everything about it suggested I should love it. And it took me four different tries. And the time that it actually worked and was magic for me was a time I hadn't sat down thinking I was going to read it. Um, so that, that happens too. Uh, sometimes the book could be the right book. It might just be the wrong time. Yeah. And as you said that, I, I even wonder, Austin, um, so I just I just got back from a conference last week at Pepperdine University, and I don't remember what the context was, so maybe I'm misquoting this, <laughs> but somebody said something to the effect of um, uh, they were talking to this older gentleman who went to a church that has very contemporary worship music that is, you know, like the band and that kind of thing. Um, which a lot of older people stereotypically do not like. And this man in particular had spoken out and said, I do not like this kind of worship. And they're like, well, then why do you come to this church? And he said, well, I may not love it, but I love to see the way others love it. That's and beautiful. These books, it's like, you know, I just don't think there's a time for me for that one right now. Maybe not ever, but I love the way you love it. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, there's an introductory note that Donald Miller has to Blue Like Jazz, his breakthrough book Great. that says, yeah, I mean, you know, it, that book is a huge part of kind of my my, my reading uh, spiritual autobiography. Um, and, and, I'm, and I talk about that in, in the pastor's bookshelf. But there, in his introductory note to that book, he says, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is almost exactly it. He says, um, I used to not like jazz music, uh, but one night I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland and I saw a man playing the saxophone with his eyes closed. And he mm -hmm. just sat there playing like that with his eyes closed for 15 minutes. And I just stood watching. He said, after that, I liked jazz music. Then here's mm -hmm. the line. Here's the line. He says, sometimes you have to watch someone else love something before you can love it yourself. It's yeah. almost as if they're showing you the way. Yes. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, mm. And 
you know, in Blue Like Jazz, one of the things that I realized after the fact that I loved so much about the book was even though Miller doesn't make a show of it in that book, it's clear how much how much passion he has for reading. Um, I went back for, for my book to just kind of look back at how, how often he references reading. And they're just, the book is just littered with references to, to writers just all across the map in terms of genre, outlook, perspective, what have you. Yeah. Um, and so the sum total is you then have spent like 240, 250 pages uh, with somebody who just is looking at the world through the lens of literature. And that was, that was in, I watched him love that and it made me love it, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think that's so right. That, um, well, I say that for anyone who maybe wants to read and wants to love reading, but doesn't necessarily, you should read Austin Carty, The Pastor's Bookshelf. Because after reading this, and I crushed this book, by the way, like I read it in two days. Um, I was like ready to pick up any and every book I could get my hands on. Well, the, nothing possibly makes me happier than than hearing you say something like that. That that is the ultimate stretch dream goal for sitting down trying to write something like this. So, thank you for saying that, and I'm I'm so glad it had that effect. Wonderful. Well, we're coming up on an hour, Austin. Thank you so much for doing this. This was wonderful. What a joy, Andrew. Great to make the new friendship. Look forward to talking about books and ministry for years and years to come. And thank you so much for inviting me on this. It's It's been a lot of fun. Yes, sir. You have a good one. You too, Andrew. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Text and Context podcast. If you're interested in some other great content, then you can go over to my website, it's txt and con txt.com. It's text and context without ease in it. So again, that's txt a n d c o n t x t.com. Head on over there and check out a bunch of free resources and plenty of articles about a wide range of topics as well as book reviews and plenty more. Thank you for listening.